Hi, I'm Carmen Dave Jenkins, and the following recording is an interview with Dawn Merritt on the role of music in cognitive rehabilitation after stroke. This very interesting podcast is based on the presentation by Dr. Dawn Merritt at this year's Stroke Society Australasia 2013 in Darwin. My name is Dawn Merritt and I work at uh, the Melbourne School of Psychological Sciences at the University of Melbourne, uh, as well as with the Florey Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health. So Dawn, at the Stroke Society Australasia meeting in the coming week, you're going to be speaking about the role of music in cognitive rehabilitation after stroke. Could you give us a bit of a background on that project? Back in uh, 2007, I was able to read a paper um, written by um, Sabine Schneider and Eckhart Altenmuller and other colleagues, and they were talking about the use of music in motor rehabilitation, and they actually used a keyboard and drums um, to do motor rehabilitation after stroke. And as I had been recently working in animal models of motor rehabilitation in stroke, I thought this was incredibly fascinating. Since I have a musical background, I thought this might be my chance to, uh, you know, be able to kind of move into uh, you know, human rehabilitation projects um, using music and to put all of those things together. Uh, I found that really exciting. So that was what actually started me down uh, the idea of um, music and rehabilitation. And then when I came here, I was working in the music neuroscience lab at Melbourne Uni and realized that cognitive rehabilitation would actually be a much better fit um, with the neuropsychology courses that I was doing. And so we decided to look at the use of music in language rehabilitation. And so does that have a speech um, therapy component or is it mainly about cognitive and sort of, I guess what I would call neuroplasticity? Is that what you're, is that the angle that you're taking? the idea of neuroplasticity in the adult human brain is obviously one that's, you know, captured researchers' attention and even the public's attention worldwide. Um, And we do have some evidence uh, of neuroplasticity of speech and language networks um, using various rehabilitation strategies. We also know that music seems to be uh, able to promote neuroplasticity um, to a great extent. We wanted to uh, investigate this idea that you know, music, and in particular singing, could promote beneficial neuroplasticity that would help reorganize language networks in the brain. We know that language and singing networks in the brain are actually very closely related. And so, yeah, the the idea that singing promotes um, functional reorganization and perhaps even structural changes in in the brain uh, after a stroke, that's probably the key mechanism that people have suggested. But we also know that music can affect cognition in other ways. And so we know that um, there's always this arousal effect uh, with music. Um, most people have heard of the Mozart effect. And, and the idea behind that, uh, when, when they did further investigations, it was really finding that music does promote cognitive arousal. And that could make music really useful in rehabilitation. Outside of any direct neuroplasticity that it might create, it might actually um, yeah, enhance arousal and perhaps then allow people to engage more fully with therapy. Um, these, these are just ideas that, um, that we're investigating at the moment. And that would be based, I guess, in the fact that it, people need motivators to try and use rehabilitation, don't they? Well, that's, that's very true. Sometimes it's really hard when rehabilitation is challenging the idea of using music is useful because music is quite inherently motivational. Um, people generally are quite well engaged with music. 
And so using music as a rehabilitation strategy might be that way of making therapy a little bit more enjoyable and perhaps a little bit more consistent. So when you say that the language and music or singing, I guess vocal singing links, are closely linked, I would assume that people would assume that they were the same thing. Are they not the same thing? That's a really good question. There is definitely overlap between singing and language, uh, but singing is perhaps in people who are not trained a little bit more bilateral than language typically is, and it's just perhaps just slightly different networks. We We do know that they are very closely overlapped, and they become even less overlapping in expert singers. And we have some recent evidence for this in our lab. Um, My supervisor uh, recently published a study in NeuroImage looking at expert singers versus non-expert singers. And she found that in the expert singers that singing seemed to be uh, a little bit more focal, a little bit more lateralized and less overlapping with the language network um, than in those who were non-expert singers. So we know that learning to sing can change the way that your brain Um, copes with singing and there might be some evidence um, as well that it can actually change language if you're dealing with a big lesion. (laughs) And what kind of imaging are you using to sort of gather this? Is it of course it's difficult you can't move when you're doing an MRI so how does that work? (laughs) Uh, That's true. We're developing um, MRI methods where we can actually have people sing overtly in the scanner and speak overtly in scanner. This is of course very important in aphasia research. We've, we've developed some techniques where um, yeah, people can actually sing out loud in scanner or speak and we can um, know that they're actually able to do the task in the scanner. And so we are collecting both structural and functional data. At the end of your research, um, your mm-hmm. outcomes are that this is really intrinsic to helping people speak again. Is that really where you're heading? Yeah, the, the idea is that um, there will be a strong clinical um, application, that this is research that can be directly translated into clinical practice. Um, there are a couple of big clinical trials happening now in other labs around the world looking at um, a particular kind of singing therapy called melodic intonation therapy. And hopefully that will help provide the strong level of evidence that we need to see this translated um, into clinical practice. Um, in in our um, research, we're particularly trying to look at mechanisms because we feel if we can actually understand some of the mechanisms whereby uh, music can be used in both cognitive rehabilitation in general as well as more specifically in language rehabilitation, then um, we will be able to optimize the the therapy. Um, And it's not just for stroke, is it? You can use this, I guess, in a lot of with a lot of cognitive disorders. There is potential to uh, apply this more broadly than just to stroke. Um, obviously, uh, there are a lot of yeah, various acquired um, brain injuries. I was thinking more well. autism and things like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I know that there are some studies in other labs um, mm, looking yeah. at the use of music in autism. Um, music has also been used in um, neurodegenerative disorders. So that's really interesting. Wow. Um it's about that idea that um, the brain is organised and restructured by music. So we're talking about rehabilitation, but it, does it also then suggest that music benefits people just in everyday life? There certainly is a suggestion that you know music could be useful in everyday life. So far, the evidence does point to music being useful in you know 
generally students who are taking music lessons, they uh, tend to do better in school. They um, have improved spatial skills. There's, there's a variety of um, different domains that have been investigated. I don't think we quite understand all of the relationships between um, how this music training is, is affecting their cognitive abilities. We've been talking a lot in our lab about how music does seem to be you know, good for people's brains. It changes their brains, we know that. There's more than 100 neuroimaging studies that um, have indicated that musicians have different brains than non-musicians. And that does pose this interesting question about whether then all of those changes are actually beneficial. Would it actually take away uh, from uh, any other cognitive functions if your brain is changed so that it's, you know, there's a specific musician's brain? <laughs> and so that's something we've been talking a lot about in our lab. We still don't know what the answer to that is. But um, yeah, it is useful to think about are all of these changes good for us? So far, we've only found positive benefits of being a musician, we haven't found any negatives. You've been listening to an International Journal of Strokes, Stroke Society Australasia meeting, podcast collaboration. The International Journal of Stroke is the flagship publication of the World Stroke Organisation. Please consider becoming a member.